0: The sermon text is the first lesson which comes from the book of the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and grief. Tear your heart and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the ram's horn in Zion, set aside a day for fasting, call a solemn convocation, gather the people, consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders, gather the children, even those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his chamber. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, have compassion on your people, O Lord. Do not subject the inheritance you have given us to the scorn of the nations. Do not make us notorious among the nations as an object of ridicule. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The word of the Lord. A lesson from St. John's Revelation, chapter 3. To the messenger of the church in Sardis write, The one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what is left, which is about to die. For I have found that your works are not complete in the sight of my God. Therefore, remember what you received and heard hold on to it, and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come upon you. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. By the time the prophet Joel wrote his little book, the nation of Israel had been in open rebellion against the Lord for generations. And true to the old Bulgarian proverb that says fish rot from the head. It was the kings of Israel that led the people into this open, blatant idolatry against the Lord, just outright ignoring the Lord's commands, stealing His worship from the temple and giving it to false gods. Now the Lord always preserved His remnant, His little flock of believers in Israel, but by this time the rebels far outnumbered the faithful in God's chosen nation. And the Lord sent Joel on a mission to wake his people up. And Joel did it with a threat. Specifically, he threatened the people of Israel with a plague of locusts if they did not repent, if they did not return to the Lord with all their heart. And for a mostly agrarian nation like Israel, there is nothing scarier than the threat of a plague of locusts because they don't just destroy, they destroy everything. They leave behind nothing but destruction and nothing to eat for a whole year. The only thing scarier than a plague of insect locusts for Israel would be if Joel's threat is figurative. And what he's really threatening is the invasion of an army, from a place like Assyria. The Assyrian army was a lot like locusts. They just destroyed everything and left nothing behind. Could have been one or the other. Could have been both. But any way you add it up, Joel said, destruction is coming if this nation does not return to the Lord with all your heart. And you might think that it's already too late. Because Joel is definitely not the first prophet that the Lord has sent with this threat. For generations, the Lord has been sending prophet after prophet to demand the repentance of Israel. And for the most part, those prophets have been met with covered ears and hardened hearts. So you might think it's already too late. But the very first words we hear from Joel tonight tell us that it's not too late. Even now, Joel says, even after all this time, even after all this rebellion, even now, return to the Lord with all your heart. And ultimately, it's not Joel telling the people of Israel that there is still time. This is the Lord's declaration. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and grief. This is true for all people that if your heart is still beating and your lungs are still drawing air, it's not too late for you. Even now, return to the Lord with all your heart. And it does not matter what amount of rebellion you have shown the Lord so far in your life, no matter what wickedness you have done, no matter what good you have left undone, even now the Lord invites every sinful human being to return to him with all of our hearts. This also tells us that it's not too late for anyone who's still living in this world. That we are not in a position to write anyone off or declare anyone beyond hope of ever returning to the Lord. Even now, Joel says, there's time. However, the fact that there is still time does not mean that there is time to wait. There is urgency in Joel's call. Blow the ram's horn in Zion, set aside a day for fasting, call a solemn convocation, gather the people, consecrate the assembly. In rapid succession, Joel says five times in a row, don't wait, do it now. Return to the Lord with all your heart. There is still time, but there is not time to waste, and there is not time for anyone to waste. Because this call to return to the Lord is for absolutely everybody. No one is exempt from it. Bring together the elders. Are you old? Are you elderly? Then this call is for you. Gather the children, even those nursing at the breast. Even infants are not innocent. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Are you in the middle of your honeymoon? Too bad. The time is now to return to the Lord with all your heart. I think this is a good one for us to pay attention to. Sometimes people think, oh, i got so much going on. I'm such a busy person. I'm so preoccupied with so many things to do. Nobody's busier or more preoccupied than a couple on their honeymoon. You can't be too busy to listen to this call because your eternal destination depends on it. You can only lie to yourself and tell yourself you're too busy, but you can't be. It's too important. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. So by this time, many of Israel's priests had become lazy and indulgent. In fact, many of them had become outright traitors to the Lord. They had left the work of the temple to go and work in the service of false gods. But that's not who's being addressed here. These are the good ones. These are the priests who have stayed, who have kept sacrificing and praying and serving the Lord in the temple. These are the men of God. But they are sinful too. They are also called to return to the Lord with all their heart because the call is for every sinful person. So, if you are listening to this call, if you are returning to the Lord in faith every day, That's good. Why are you doing it? And if you're not, what is going to move you to do it? Well, it is first of all God's declaration in his word that he has a law, he has commandments, and he threatens destruction on anyone who rebels against him and his commandments. He threatened Israel with the destruction of locusts, either insects or soldiers or both. And he threatens every rebel, every sinner, with eternal destruction, with condemnation. That is terrifying. And that is the part of God's word that he uses to wake sinners up. But ultimately, that's not the message that causes us to turn back to the Lord with all of our hearts. I mean, if that's where God's word ended, if that was the end of his communication you are a rebel who has broken my law and I'm going to send you to hell? Who would ever turn toward a God like that? It's gross. You might as well take the advice of Job's wife. Curse God and die. You're going to hell anyway. But that is not where God's word ends. He has more to say to us. And the more that he has to say is the most beautiful message there is. And this is the message with the power to turn sinful hearts back to the Lord. Return to the Lord your God for, see this is why you do it, he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Who knows? Joel asks. Well, we do. We know. We know that God is gracious and compassionate and merciful. We know it because we have seen it in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Grace is love that you do not deserve. And in the work of Jesus Christ, we find grace upon grace from our God. It was God's undeserved love, His grace, that sent Jesus down from the Father's side into the virgin's womb and then into the manger. And it was God's grace, His undeserved love, that led His Son to live a perfectly righteous life. No rebellion at all against the Father's commandment, the righteous robe of Christ that now covers us through faith. It was God's grace, His undeserved love, that caused Jesus to suffer under Pontius Pilate, and then suffer the wrath of God on the cross so that we will not have to. God's undeserved love brought Jesus out of the grave so that we also have the promise of a resurrection where we will be free from sin and all of its effects. And it is also God's grace that we get to do what we do here in this sanctuary. It is God's grace to fill our eyes, our ears, and even our mouths with this saving work of Jesus Christ so that we know it and we believe it. God is gracious. The prophet Joel and the few remaining believers in Israel were looking ahead to that gracious work of the Messiah. We have the privilege of coming after the fact. We get to look back on it and see God's grace in all of its amazing detail. And it is that grace that turns our hearts back to the Lord. Back in the Old Testament at the time of Joel, when people did this, when they repented, they returned to the Lord, the Lord gave them these outward symbolic gestures of repentance that He wanted them to to show, like sitting in sackcloth and ashes, fasting, weeping and mourning. My feeling is that most of you are probably a little less expressive than that, and that's okay. Okay. God does not demand that New Testament believers do any of these outward symbolic things. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. Earlier in this service, we did a very small one with the imposition of ashes. Those who wanted to could do it. Those who didn't want to, didn't have to. We also need to be careful about giving the impression that there's some sort of minimum bar of sorrow that you have to clear before you're truly a repentant Christian. There's even one confession of sins that we use in one of our Sunday orders that makes me a little nervous because it says, but I am truly sorry for my sins, as if there's a minimum amount of sorrow that you have to reach, a certain level of grief that must seize the heart, or a quota of tears that you have to weep. God knows what lies inside of each human heart. He knows where there is sorrow for sin, which is simply regret, that I have offended my God by rebelling against him. On the other hand, we should also not be surprised if at certain points along the way in our lives we do something that's outwardly so disgusting or we speak words that are so vicious that it does spill over to our emotions in some sort of outward display of our repentance. If that happens, We don't have to judge ourselves or anybody else as being maudlin or overly dramatic. The important thing is that God has worked sorrow for sin in the human heart. Regret that we have rebelled against Him. And the even more important thing is that God in His grace then calls us out of that guilt. Out of that sorrow and out of that regret into his amazing forgiveness in Christ. And as a wonderfully loving God, he leaves an open invitation for his people at all times to return to the cross of Jesus Christ, to lay all of your sin there, together with all of your guilty feelings and all of your regret, and let Jesus wash it away with his blood. And then you get to go forward and, free God, and serve God freely and joyfully. You get to rise up in the waters of your baptism every day and serve God in joy, keeping his will freely. Because while God does not require symbolic displays like sackcloth and ashes and fasting and mourning, he does want to see something on the outside from those who have returned with all their hearts. He wants to see the fruits of repentance. He wants to see an improved life. So for example, if I have been struggling with the sin of stealing, and God in in His threat of destruction works this sorrow in my heart, and then He calls me in His grace and His compassion to turn to Him for the forgiveness of those sins, I'm going to turn back then to that sin of stealing, and I'm going to say, no more. The thieving stops, and the money goes back. Or maybe it's something good that God does want to see in my life that hasn't really been there lately. For example, let's say I've been pretty cold and indifferent to the people around me, treating them like they're invisible. If I have godly regret in my heart for that, I have turned to God who is gracious and compassionate. I have received his forgiveness. Then I'm going to turn back and say, there's going to be more Of that love of neighbor from now on that God wants to see in my life. So it's a good idea on Ash Wednesday to look at your life honestly and ask yourself what needs to improve? What is it in my life that needs to come more in line with God's Word? And whatever it is, show the fruits of repentance. The very beautiful thing about it is that God's grace, His compassion, His promise of forgiveness, that's the most powerful thing there is to help Christians produce those fruits. So, for example, if it's stealing, when I come to that temptation, again, I will say, God is gracious and compassionate. He has been gracious to me. And then pray, God, help me in your love. To overcome this sin. And more and more the fruits of repentance will be there in your life more of what God wants and less of what displeases Him. And finally, we should notice that Joel does promise in these verses that God blesses richly those who do return to Him with all their hearts. Do not subject the inheritance you have given us to the scorn of the nations. Do not make us notorious among the nations as an object of ridicule. See what Joel is promising here to a repentant Israel is that the Lord is going to reward that by relenting, by drawing back this destruction that he had been threatening. And Joel also says the Lord will leave behind a blessing. So that we can give him even bigger and better offerings. The Lord blesses those who return with all their hearts. He blesses you. You are blessed knowing that your sins are forgiven and that you have the promise of heaven. This is how amazing God is. Not only does he pull back the threat of destruction in hell. He replaces that with the promise of life in heaven that never ends. You are blessed to be able to leave all of the guilt and the shame of your sin at Jesus' cross and be able to serve God joyfully and freely. He blesses you by giving you the confidence, knowing that you are his child, and you will be his child forever. And then on top of that, God blesses his people in many other ways too. He might make you rich, he might bless you with material wealth or not, kind of think that's one of the more overrated ways that God blesses his people. He might give you something way better than money. He might give you a spouse who loves you. He might give you children and grandchildren who love you. He might give you career success. He might give you lots of friends. Or he might give you a life in this world that's pretty sparsely blessed, but then richly rewarded in heaven, like Lazarus in Luke's gospel. But however he chooses to do it, Whenever, wherever, in whatever combination, the Lord blesses those who return with all their heart. So, even now, elders, children, those nursing, bridegrooms and brides, return to the Lord, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. Amen.